The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, and welcome to Barron's Live, the Market Watch edition. I'm Jamie Lee, the health editor at Market Watch. I am here today with Nathan Vardy, Market Watch's managing editor of Enterprise and the author of a new book. Welcome, Nathan. It's great uh, to be here with you today, Jamie. Thanks for doing it. Yes, uh, I'm excited. Um, so congratulations on your new book, which is called For Blood and Money, Billionaires, Biotech, and the Quest for a Blockbuster Drug. Thank you. <laughs> Very exciting. Uh, so the book came out Tuesday. It's an incredibly thoughtful read, um, really interesting about how we got two rival cancer, cancer drugs, uh, Imbruvica and Calquence. So um, both of them treat common forms of adult leukemia. And um, you write um, that the investment in the companies that develop these drugs represents two of the greatest biotech trades basically ever. And so um, in that time period when this happened, you describe it as the golden age of biotech investing. So tell me, how did, how did you, how, did, how would you describe this era of biotech? Well, I think like that's, it's definitely what, what, what one of the things I was trying to do is write kind of a story that epitomized um, this era of, uh, of a golden age of biotech. Uh, investing, you know, for the la in the last decade, it really did feel like we were living in this kind of era. Um, there were new gene therapies uh, that replaced defective genes with healthy ones, uh, immunotherapies that were real game changers in in cancer, uh, innovative medicines uh, for rare diseases and HIV, and you know there were like close to 400 drugs that were approved by the FDA, new drugs between 2010. In 2019, and, and a big chunk of those were oncology medicines. And you know, biotechnology companies played a very big role in developing many of these treatments. And you could see that kind of in the stock market. You know, biotech stocks did very well last decade. Uh, they returned. You know, if you look at the IBB, uh, you know, biotech index about 350 percent in the decade. Uh, ending December 31st, 2019. And that kind of edged out the NASDAQ, you know, high tech index, the composite, uh, which had a return of about 340%. And it, you know, beat the pants off of uh, the S&P 500. Um, so I would argue that the two drugs that I write about in my book for blood and money um, kind of represent the peak of that biotech boom and arguably the peak of the biotech boom. We, we talk about that. Um, you know, Pharmacyclics uh, is the biotech company that developed Imbruvica. Uh, during the financial crisis, it traded for 57 cents, uh, the stock did, and the company was sold for $21 billion, uh, which was $261 a share. Um, and it literally owned at the time half of one drug, half of Imbruvica. Um, and Acerta, uh, which developed Calquence, was a startup and it was sold. Uh, for 6.6 .6 billion. 
Um, so I think both these these companies really uh, the returns and 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 the story behind them kind of epitomize uh, the biotech boom. Got it. Got it. And what would you say, um, are there any other kind of trends or themes that you think um, kind of um, epitomize this, this golden era uh, for biotechs? I, yeah, I think there are a lot of themes that are hit upon uh, in my book uh, that really characterize this era. You know, one of them, which I've thought a lot about, is forgotten drugs. Um, for, I think of forgotten drugs as drugs that are trapped in the pipelines of bigger pharmaceutical companies, and they're just kind of waiting for someone to discover them uh, like buried treasure. Um, these are, are good drugs that after years of innovation can still languish in the bellies of big conglomerates, um, kind of bureaucracies that are too burdened with their own processes and procedures uh, to develop these tiny gems. And, you know, during the biotechnology golden age, some really shrewd entrepreneurs and companies figured out that they could fish these compounds out of the larger pharmaceutical companies for pennies on the dollar, develop them, get them to patients, and also, you know, make a very good return. Um, and Imbruvica really like was, was, was one of the, you know, greatest forgotten drugs. It was developed by a company called, it was created by a company called Celera Genomics. Um, and um, the company didn't even bother to patent the compound. Uh, and the company um, uh, shut down its development and fired the people who created it. Um, and, you know, Richard Miller, who was the CEO of Pharmacyclics at the time, swooped in and bought it in a $6.6 million deal with, with a bunch of other drugs. And I'll tell you that the developers at Solera or the chemists at Solera, the way they looked at it, they felt Imbruvica was just thrown in the deal for, for nothing. Um, Calquince, by contrast, was developed in the Netherlands um, in a tiny town called Oss. It was at a company called Organon. And Organon uh, was sold to a company called Sharing Plow here in New Jersey. And Sharing Plow was then sold to a larger New Jersey company that you might have heard of called Merck. Um, and Merck had zero interest in the Netherlands. It shut down its development uh, of Calquins and it shut down its whole operations in Oz, period. Um, and that uh, meant that the drug was just kind of languishing there. And it was eventually bought, uh, as I report in my book, for an upfront cost of $1,000. Um, and you might find this interesting, Jamie, because um, Calquins uh, was not the only drug that was developed in Oz. Uh, there's another drug uh, that was developed in the same building as Calquins. It was a, a PD-1 inhibitor, and uh, Merck also had no interest in it. And that PD-1 inhibitor got on a term sheet, as I report in the book, um, and it was almost sold. And at the last minute, someone at Merck wised up and figured that was not a good idea. And I could tell you, you, you know what I'm talking about because you're smiling. That, that PD-1 inhibitor today is known as, as Keytruda. And it generates, uh, you know, 17 billion or 18 billion dollars of revenue a year, and um, it's more than a third of Merck's revenue. It, it, it is Merck is Keytruda today. Um, it, it's a great example of a forgotten drug that at the last second someone remembered. Got it. Got it. And so, kind of jumping ahead to the present day, 
are we still in this era? And if we're not, what's changed? So, you know, I think things have definitely changed. And I wrote about this in Stat uh, News yesterday. Um, you know, I, I, I think that, look, you look at, at, you know, the drubbing of biotech stocks over the last 16 months, you know, obviously they performed very, very poorly. Um, and I think to a large extent that is a result of the Federal Reserve, you know, tightening mon monetary policy and as a result, um, kind of removing risk capital from the markets. And, you know, biotech is the quintessential kind of risk market. Um, so that's that's definitely something that's happened. But there are also political and regulatory and structural obstacles um, uh, that the biotechnology sector really has to overcome. Uh, you know, Congress is making it really hard now and regulators are making it very hard to get um, uh, drugs approved to the accelerated approval uh, uh, program. And that was a very important program uh, that, as far as when you look at the biotech boom. Um, and it's going to be more expensive and harder to get drugs approved, I think, because of that. You know, these, these were through, through accelerated approval, you can get drugs approved you know, with a single arm trial and you know, small studies, um, and you can kind of get to market quickly. Um, and then in addition to that, um, you know, we, we had omnibus uh, uh, legislation at the end of last year, and, and Congress really made it explicit that companies would have to go out and do very expensive full approval, you know, uh, randomized trials, registration trials afterwards. Uh, so it's just gonna change the biotech equation a little. In, in addition to that, we had the Inflation Reduction Act last year. That's going to very soon um, have companies uh, negotiate with the government uh, when it comes to uh, their most expensive medicines that are covered by Medicare uh, that don't have a generic competition. And, you know, that's going to, you know, by definition, make patented those 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 you know, those patented drugs less valuable. It's also going to complicate the regulatory chess game that I think uh, pharmaceutical companies have to play uh, because the clock will start ticking once they get their first approval. So like, again, if you look at Imbruvica and Calquins, both those drugs were rushed to market um, through the accelerated approval uh, program in a pretty small indication, uh, mantle cell lymphoma. Uh, the bigger uh, indication, uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, their big market came later. Um, so I think companies are going to have to rethink how they're approaching their regulatory strategies as a result. Then on top of that, you have Project Optimus, which where the federal, the FDA is really changing, um, you know, how uh, companies uh, find uh, the right doses uh, for their medicines. Uh, they want companies going away from the maximum tolerated dose where they would rush at the beginning of a phase one trial to figure out what, what the maximum tolerated dose was. And they want them to search for lower doses where there's efficacy. Um, that's going to be complicated. It's going to be more expensive. We'd, we've already seen Amgen. Uh, we've already seen Merck with its Arcule deal have to go back and do, do uh, you know, find the right doses. It's been expensive. Um, so that's another issue that people have to, that, that companies are going to have to figure out. Um, we have more regulatory holds, right? Uh, we we mm -hmm. have, uh, uh, you know, the FDA issuing many more uh, regulatory holds on biotech and pharma. We saw that in a Wall Street Journal article just yesterday that looked at that issue. So that's just the political and regulatory. Then you look at the structural headwinds where you have, you know, inflation hitting the economy broadly. 
um, and that includes biotech. Um, so it's you know costs more to run your clinical trials. You have to you have to you know cost more to have uh, good talent at your companies. Um, and then you have this other dynamic, I think, which we really should think about, which is you had um, a lot of companies in SPACs and IPOs during the go-go days of the pandemic raise a lot of money, honestly, before I think they really could justify it. Um, and, you know, now they have to, like, figure out a way to make all that work while they're burning cash. And I think it's going to be very hard uh, for those companies to then go back and raise money again. So I think I think all of these structural, regulatory and political issues are going to make it hard for biotech stocks and biotech investing going forward. Yep. And I think we're seeing that um, there's a, a few questions that have come in about the new Alzheimer's treatments. And we're seeing the the um, the question about accelerated approval play out there. Right. So, um, you know, the the drug that we saw get approved, Lacanumab, last week, it is under an accelerated approval. And so, you know, depending on um, they, the companies have said they are going to seek a full approval this quarter. Um, but again, um, you know, and with that accelerated approval comes limitations from the CMS. But, um, you know, I think that's an interesting test case for us to be observing to see what happens to that kind of regulatory pathway going forward. Uh, yeah, I think it's a great, obviously, like, I don't know, it's kind of a great new beginning for Alzheimer's after so many uh, uh, failures and disappointments. Um, I still think we have a long way to go, but but um, it's great to see kind of a new start uh, for Alzheimer's. Uh, that's kind of how I think about it. Definitely, definitely. So um, if this biotech stock boom is over because of all of these kind of obstacles that you've just outlined, what does that mean for basically the, the future of biotech innovation? Like what what can people expect now going forward? Well, I mean, you know, good medicines are still going to be funded. I, I'm really, con you know, totally convinced of that, you know, uh, Bob Duggan, uh, Robert Duggan is one of the uh, people at, who features prominently in my book for blood and money. And he was the CEO of Pharmacyclics. And, and he would always say that there's never a scarcity of money or ideas. There's only a scarcity of confidence in mm. those ideas. And I think when, where there's confidence, there will be funding. Um, but I, I do think, I, I, you know, I'm of the opinion that biotech investing is going to be a lot harder this decade um, and, and I do believe that the overall impact on innovation for patients is, isn't clear. Um, you know, there, there've been a lot of regulatory and legislative changes that are coming. I think a lot of that's coming, you know, maybe, you know, from a good place. I mean, there really is a legitimate public debate about the high prices uh, and the high cost of drugs and the safety of efficacy of drugs that are being approved. Um, and, you know, we have different public policy efforts uh, to try to deal with that. Uh, but my personal view is that anyone who tells you confidently what the outcome of all that's going to be, um, I just I just don't know how they can be so sure. Uh, you know, we had a certain uh, a regulatory, uh, you know, and kind of investment landscape that existed, uh, you know, in the 2010s, and I, it produced a tremendous amount of innovation. And now that's changing. And it's, you know, it's really hard to predict how that all plays out. So I'm not saying it's, it's going to play out one way or the other, uh, but but it's so hard to, to say. Got it. Got it. 
And um, just a reminder, you can send um, any questions you have for um, your Nathan um, into the queue right now. Um, so I guess kind of on the flip side of this, are you hopeful about biotech <laughs> on that note? Well, um, I, I'm hopeful because for a number of reasons. Um, uh, I mean, first of all, there's a lot of great science out there, you know, whether it's CAR-Ts or CRISPR or a lot of the AI-driven approaches that are being tried in drug discovery. I think it's really exciting. And, you, you know, you, you look at the carnage of biotech stocks uh, today and you think, you know, there's got to be another pharmacyclics out there. You know, as I said before, like pharmacyclics was trading at 57 cents its stock uh, in 2008, and, and it ended up running up to $261. Um, and, and you look at the market today, and it's really tempting to say, well, there's got to be another one like that in the wreckage. Um, you know, I will say that, you know, pharmacyclics also like benefited from a, a more accommodating uh, regulatory regime from the FDA. It was the first, Imbruvica was the first drug to receive uh, three breakthrough uh, therapy designations, which, mm -hmm. which was legislation that came from the Obama administration. So I just, you know, I, I, I am hopeful. Um, I, you know, I would also say like another thing in researching this book that makes me hopeful is, is I really came to appreciate uh, how many unsung, like amazing, amazing unsung heroes there are who work in biotechnology. You know, they, they take a lot of crap uh, because of the outrage over the high prices of, drug, mm -hmm. of drugs, but, but they, they are really so many amazing people working in the sector. I, I want to tell you about one of them. Um, Raquel Izumi uh, is prominently featured in my book. She's, she's an amazing person, okay? Raquel, uh, her mother uh, was, was pregnant with her. She was from Colombia. She, she came into the United States and, and kept the pregnancy hidden. And as a result, um, you know, Raquel was born in the United States and she grew up in Northern California. She was adopted by her uh, Japanese American uh, stepfather. Um, and uh, she got a, a biology degree uh, from UCSB and a PhD from UCLA. And her big break was when she was hired as a clinician at, um, at Pharmacyclics. And, and, you know, it was Raquel who worked tirelessly to enroll and design the key early CLL trials uh, for Imbruvica. And, you know, her work got noticed. And, you know, Bob Duggan called her into, uh, as I write in the book, in, into his office one day and gave her the biggest raise of her life and told her she was a linchpin for the organization. And then a month later, he fired her uh, for reasons that I get into in the book, but, um, but, but uh, which he never really explained. And, um, you know, it was really hard on her. Uh, and at one point she was, you know, she had two kids. She's living on a Silic in Silicon Valley with a Silicon Valley mortgage. Um, but um, instead of getting like a, a corporate, you know, job, uh, she decided to, you know, co-found Asserta, even though it probably didn't make much financial sense. Um, the, the R in Asserta stands for Raquel. Mm -hmm. And again, she worked really tirelessly and, and she, she helped develop Calquins and get, and get that drug to patients. So, People like Raquel, and, and I, and you know, really researching this book, I found there's so many people like her in biotech. Really, do make me hopeful uh, about what's to come. Interesting, and that was actually something that stood out to me was uh, Bob Dugan, who was the former CEO, or he was the CEO of Pharmacyclics, 
um, didn't have, um, you know, a medical or biotech background. He kind of had this colorful, um, had done lots of things, um, career, uh, before, uh, an emotional reason brought him into the field. And so I'm kind of curious, do those opportunities still exist? Has the industry changed and moved too forward? Um, just kind of curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, you know, uh, Robert Duggan is a unique person. Um, you know, he, he, he didn't have a college degree. Uh, yeah. He certainly wasn't a scientist. Um, he took um, on-the-job training like to a whole new level. He, he literally was reading children's books right. while he was CEO of Pharmacyclics in, in order to understand human biology better. And, and, he, and he wasn't ashamed of this. You know, he's like he, yeah. he was totally honest with himself about what he knew and what he didn't know. Uh, but in five years, um, he managed the development, uh, you know, of Improvica, putting it in the clinic, uh, through to um, approval, a partnership with J and J, and um, getting 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 the drug to patients, and and also from a financial perspective, selling a pharmacyclics at like the absolute peak at, at the absolute right time. Um, so I, I do think those opportunities. Are still there for people who are passionate about what about what they're doing. You know, Bob was partially passionate because his son had died um, tragically um, at a young age. Uh, I think he was 26 uh, from from cancer, and, and he wanted to get involved in uh, cancer drug development as a result. Um, and and so I, you know, I do think that um, for people who are motivated and passionate, yeah, there, there are opportunities for sure. What about investors? How should investors think about kind of who helms these companies, whether it's someone who's, you know, um, an MD or a scientist, someone on the business side or someone who kind of self-taught themselves into that type of role? I think it's really hard to assess from the outside. I'm not, uh, you know, I think I think it's really, really uh, difficult. Um, but I do think that if, if investors get into the science, and try to understand the underlying uh, science and then try to understand uh, the different regulatory strategies that companies are pursuing. Um, and then, you know, also layering in, you know, who's running the company, um, one could get an idea of, um, of, of where things might be going. It's a, it's a very tough game. And, um, but I will say, you know, one of the characters in my book is Wayne uh, Rothbaum. Uh, who had never previously spoken to um, a journalist before. And uh, Wayne is, uh, you know, probably, um, uh, he's a legendary biotech. He's one of the best biotech investors of, of his generation. And he has this philosophy that you really have to bet big on the, on the when you're a biotech investor, on the companies that you think really, really have a shot. Like he did it in a really... Uh, uh, extreme way. He, he, he's willing to bet everything on one company. Like that's mm -hmm. what he's going to do. Uh, and, and part of his thinking is, look, most drugs fail, right? M most drugs that go in, into the clinic fail. And um, um, it, it's all really, really, you know, drug development's, you know, really hard. And so like his idea is that if you're going to spend all this time understanding a company and believing in it, like you really kind of, you know, having a portfolio approach to biotech from his perspective, you know, isn't, isn't, isn't the best approach. So, you know, you know, I don't think that's for most people. And, but, but I, I think it's interesting when you think about biotech and, and how, and how 
these companies are structured. And I also think it's important going forward because I think in in the 2010s, you know, we had this kind of like you know low interest rates and this kind of very benign regulatory environment, and now those things are kind of going away. So I think having a kind of broader biotech approach might be harder. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I think we're also seeing um, you know some cyclical. Uh, categories, you know, like Nash a few years ago, everyone was talking about it like five plus years ago. It was a big worry for the pharmacy benefit managers if a Nash got, uh, drug got approved. Um, you know, then it kind of was quiet. And now we've got a company like Madrigal that, you know, has showed, has, you know, brought a drug into phase three. It's promising um, so far. And so um, it'll be interesting to see kind of how it plays out um, going further, um, further into this decade. Um, and so, um, I guess <laughs> kind of a, um, a fun question, uh, when it comes to cancer development, drug development, is it better to be lucky or is it better to be good? Well, we, we talked about, um, Bob Duggan before and, um, when the success of Imbruvica became clear, um, Forbes ran an article with the headline, um, you know, Bob Duggan became a billionaire from a lucky drug. And, uh, he was very, he didn't like that. But, but um, there's always been this kind of debate in biotech circles about him. Like, was he lucky or was he good or which was it? And um, I think like you got to be both, right? Like, so in his case, you know, he invested in pharmacyclics because I told you his son had passed away and, and he had had glioblastoma and pharmacyclics was initially developing a drug that um, targeted uh, brain cancer. It was trying to enhance radiation therapy. Um, and that's why he invested in pharmacyclics and got involved and ultimately became CEO. And, um, you know, that drug failed, but then they had this other drug on the shelf. Um, if you look at Imbruvica, um, Imbruvica was a drug that was, you know, created at Solera Genomics as a tool compound uh, for uh, targeting rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and it was a covalent compound, which meant that it irreversibly bound to its target. Uh, mm -hmm. And drug companies didn't like that at the time. You know, they were they, they were afraid about about um, side effects that could be created. Right. Uh, they shunned it. So 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 Solera created these covalent compounds, and it created these 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 non-covalent compounds. Um, and then um, you know the the drug ended up at pharmacyclics. And they decided not to test it in rheumatoid arthritis. You know, the CEO at the time, Richard Miller, said we should try this in lymphoma. Let's try it in lymphoma. And it turned out that the um, that 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 uh, the covalent compound seemed in in the preclinical to to be better. So they went with that one. And in addition to that, I always thought this was crazy when I was reporting the book out that um, he originally it was he originally wanted to test it in lymphoma, and then he. He kind of included uh, CLL in the first phase phase one trial as well uh, because he thought you know it'd be easier with, with CLL patients uh, to take uh, you know to do assays and take because you could do it with a with a biopsy as as opposed to something more more involved um, and then it turned out that the drug was really the most efficacious in in CLL so a lot of this has to do with luck you know but also you got to be good to be lucky. So I think it's, it's always got to be a combination. But I do, sometimes I really, when I think about drug, a cancer drug researchers, I really kind of have this vision of them like stumbling around in the dark. You know, it's so, so hard. This is all so, so, so hard. And so um, a question, a live question we just got in. Um, so what are your views on investing in biotech via 
an ETF versus, you know, an individual stock kind of looking at this moment we're in, you know, um, valuations are dropping. Um, however, deal making has kind of restarted a little bit this year. Um, it, you know, it's, I think you described to me earlier this week as a little lukewarm, but, um, you know, kind of smaller deals, but curious what your, your take is on, on the stock. I'll answer that question in a moment, but I, I will say that I think that investors who are hoping that big pharma are going to come to the rescue of mm -hmm. biotech are, I think they're going to be disappointed. That's my personal opinion. Um, you see, you know, this is JP Morgan week and, and the deals that are being announced are really, I think, not that inspiring um, compared to what we saw, for example, during the biotech boom. And the reason for this, I think, is that during the, the that kind of um, golden age era that I talked about, um, biotech companies clearly took the lead, right, um, in, in innovation. And the big pharma companies were, were much happier to just kind of de-risk assets, you know, buy de-risk assets and, you know, wait till there was some progress and then, and then, and then buy. Um, but I think after watching that happen and seeing all the big victories from biotech, the big pharma companies have said, you know what, we want to be part of, we want, we want innovation, you know, and they're investing in their own pipelines. So like an example I always give is Pfizer, which, you know, if you look at the 2010s, what was Pfizer doing? They were like into mergers and, you know, tax arbitrages. They, you know, and, and that, you know, that's what they were doing. And if you look at them now, you know, they've divested their consumer products business. They've divested their generics business. They've divested their veterinary business. And they're focusing and investing in innovation for vaccines and products. Um, and so if you talk to anyone in biotech these days, what they will tell you is that when they have a conversation with a BD person, from big pharma, the first thing that the BD person is going to say is, let me get back to you. I need to check my internal pipeline. And I, I think that's going to be the dynamic. Um, and so I do think that a broad sector biotech investing approach is going to be hard. That's my personal opinion. Uh, on the other hand, I think for retail investors, you know, I generally think that that's a good strategy. So I, I, it's, it's really hard for me to say, because uh, I'm bearish on biotech. But on the other hand, you know, I, I think for regular in investors, it's really, really hard uh, uh, to invest, you know, on single with single stocks in mind in any sector. It's very challenging. So um, it's I think it's going to be I think it's going to be tough in biotech is my personal opinion. Got it. Well, um, unfortunately, on a <laughs> on a low note to close. <laughs> Um, but uh, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much, Nathan. Um, thank and thank you to our audience for tuning in. Um, we had a ton of great questions we were not able to get to. Um, but we hope you listen to our episode tomorrow. Uh, Barron's editor is Alex Uhl and Eric Savitz. will discuss the outlook for tech companies and individual stocks in 2023. Thank you again for listening and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.